0: Reading from Ecclesiastes 1 and 2. I said in my heart, You have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was the reward for my toil." Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly. "'as there is more gain in light than in darkness. "'The wise person has eyes in his head, "'but the fool walks in darkness. "'And yet I perceived that the same event "'happens to all of them. "'Then I said in my heart, "'What happens to the fool will happen to me also. "'Why then have I been so very wise? "'And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For "'For of the wise as of the fool "'there is no enduring remembrance.' seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. This is God's good word to us.
1: So, both of my grandparents, um, both sets of my grandparents, especially my grandpa's, passed away when I was young. My, on the trotter side of my family, I um, really didn't know my grandpa. He died when I was probably just a toddler. But on, on my mom's side, on the Hodel side, uh, my grandfather lived in, probably until I was in elementary school. His name was George, George Hodel, but nobody called him George. Everybody called him Shorty. Because he was short, um, he's standing there with my mom behind my mom. My mom was all of about five two, and uh, he's looking her right in the eye. I, I think at that point in time. But uh, my grandpa, during the great amidst the Great Depression, raised twelve children. Twelve. Um, On a plot of land in central Illinois, he buried one son shortly after birth. He sent several other sons off to war. He saw 11 of his children get married and watched over 30 grandchildren grow up. Um, He raised his family in the church, even though that church disciplined him at one point for allowing his family to listen to the radio, which was really edgy technology in the 1930s, evidently. I have memories amidst that herd of 30-plus grandkids of him taking me, just me, fishing at Eureka Lake in central Illinois, Um, just him and me, and what I would give to sit on the back porch with a cup of coffee and glean some wisdom from a man who lived that full of a life, right? And there's a sense um, in which we get to do something very similar together today. We get to sit with a man who lived a a life beyond full and glean extraordinary life wisdom from him. Our our back porch companion today is no ordinary man. He was a man of great stature. He was a king. Uh, He was a man of unheard of wealth. You could say he was the Elon Musk of his day. He was an architect, he was a rancher, and yes, he was a philanderer, he was a lover of good music, he was knowledgeable in fields like viticulture, the growing of vineyards and horticulture, and silviculture, the growing of trees and such. He, had, he was, it has been said on good authority, the wisest of men in his day. His resume reads like that of a real renaissance man, Right? We don't know his name for sure. The only name ever associated with him that I know of was that of King Solomon. But the book we're studying, the book of Ecclesiastes, doesn't name him. Rather, it kind of gives him a title, Koheleth, with a Q. Um, It could mean something like the preacher or the teacher, and that's the way most of your Bibles render it. Um, You see... Kohalath had been on a quest. His whole life had been a quest for meaning and purpose. He didn't just search for a semester or two. Um, You get the sense that what we're about to listen in on is a man who lived his whole life as a quest and is now sharing with us the wisdom that he gained. Um, At this point in his life, I'd bet he's a grandpa. So I'm going to refer to him today as Grandpa Q, all right? And we get to sit figuratively on the back porch with a cup of coffee and Grandpa Q today and get wisdom from a man who lived a life that was the stuff of legends. It would have been been the stuff of movies if they had been around back in the day. So if you'll open your Bible to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, I invite you to just sit back and listen to the sagest advice, advice from one of the wisest men who ever lived. And I'll pray for us as you find your way there your, on your devices or whatever you're using. Father, have mercy on us. Give us ears to hear a life, a life's wisdom written down, recorded flawlessly for us. So, Lord, we, we pause, we give you our attention, we open our lives, we sit under your good words for us now. Amen. Amen. So, as we get ready to listen to Grandpa Q this morning, let me um, tell you a story about something that happened to me this week that I hope will help us better hear his advice and think more about how it should shape each of our lives. Um, Because the advice, it's interesting, the advice that he's about to give us, though it was written thousands, literally thousands of years ago, it feels like it could have been written on this week's blog post. And the question, and it's always with advice from grandpas or gospels, is whether or not we'll hear it, whether or not we'll welcome it, whether or not we'll receive it as God's good counsel for us. And so I hope the little incident I'm gonna, I'm gonna share with you helps you um, welcome this advice. So my wife and I, Steph and I, are cyclists, right? That is to say, we ride bikes together. Um, not Harleys, not beach cruisers, road bikes. Uh, skinny tires, drop handlebars, and in the case on my bike, something called a clipless pedal. Um, this means that you have to wear goofy shoes with cleats um, that lock you into the pedals when you ride. And when you first start riding, it's every bit as wise and safe as that sounds. But after a while, you get used to it. And uh, the, the trick for me is that we have a gravel, a gravel driveway in our house that leads up to the paved road in front of our house, and so... Rather than wear those cleats and walk in the gravel and get them all chock full of rocks, I wear Crocs up to the road and I sit down on a stool, change shoes when I get up to the pavement. Um, The stool, this is an important part, detail in the story, stool looks like this. This is my stool that I sit on up at the road when I'm swapping out my shoes. And that little piece of fabric at the bottom of that stool, at some point on my stool, had come loose, detached from one of the legs. Um, But no worries, the stool is still intact, it's rated for 250 pounds, I got a pretty good buffer between me and 250, so I continue to use the stool. Um, I'm sitting on said stool, and I notice my neighbors, Skip and Cindy, pulling into the driveway nearby, and I flag them down, because we had a tree guy coming on Monday and I wanna know if they want in on it and they want him to trim some limbs or cut down some trees on, on their, their property as well. And while I'm trying to flag Skip and Cindy down, um, I'm, I'm flagging furiously and I shift my weight a little bit and uh, this happens. This is, this is my stool um, that, that's supposed to hold 250 pounds, right? Um, I end up on my keister in the road right there in front of my neighbors. And I learned two things from this little embarrassment, and neither of them is about my girth. Okay, that's not, that's not the point uh, this morning. That's a, another conversation I probably need to have with my physician. But uh, that little strip of material uh, down at the bottom of that stool that had torn loose, this one right here, Turns out uh, that matters. Uh, That little, it it is actually called an anti-splay reinforcement panel, and it's aptly named as it turns out. As I lay there splayed out on the pavement, Um, turns out this the stool was kind of pre-broken when I took my tumble. I just didn't think it mattered, right? Um, I thought the stool could still bear my weight. Okay, that's the first thing that. I want us to think about today, but the second thing is clearly I was mistaken in that assumption. Um, as a result of that flaw, that little camping stool would no longer bear the weight, nowhere near 250, um, that, that I asked it to bear. That's really the key that I want you to carry away from this story uh, that I'm sharing with you. It wouldn't bear the weight. Okay? It, 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 could, it could not bear the weight that I was asking it to bear. And that's what I want you to remember from my story as you listen in now on Grandpa Q's story. So pick it up in chapter two of the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, If you missed last Sunday, to make good sense out of what I'm gonna say today and really the rest of the teaching in the book of Ecclesiastes as we walk through it, you really need to go back to our website, listen in on Carson's wonderful teaching that he gave last week to introduce the book of Ecclesiastes. He did a fantastic job. And he, he was able to set things in place that will really help you understand all the more what I'm trying to communicate this morning. So I encourage you to, to give that a good listen. Um, so let's jump in. Grandpa Q's story. He says, In my heart, in v- chapter 2, verse 1, Come now. I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. Now, Grandpa Q's quest we saw last week, began in chapter 1, kind of surveyed all of creation and briefly considered wisdom. It's a topic he's going to return to, we'll see today. But at this point, his quest is focused on the exploration of pleasure. Some have called it hedonism, right? And he's considering this question. Will the pursuit of pleasure bear the weight of giving meaning to my life, the weight of what I'm calling soul satisfaction. And he starts with laughter in verse 2, and his conclusion is swift. The escape by means of comedy cannot bear the weight of the meaning of life. He says in in verse 2, I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? Now his exploration of pleasure in terms of meaning is much more thorough than this little summary would indicate. In fact, he's going to go from here all the way through verse 11 in this chapter chronicling his pursuit of pleasure. But before we look at the details of Grandpa Q's pleasure quest, I'd like for us to hear his conclusion. Drop down to verse 9. He says, So I, I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. So, clearly, remember again, this is, this grandpa Q is no ordinary grandpa, right? Just musing about his ordinary life. He had wealth beyond at his disposal, as we're going to see, beyond our wildest dreams. He had intellect beyond any PhD student you've ever met, and his search, it says here, was exhaustive, right? Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, and he he admits here gladly. It was pleasurable, right? My heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for my toil. So he doesn't deny the pleasure of it all. He's just saying it won't bear the weight of the question he is asking. It won't bring soul satisfaction. So he continues in verse 11. He says, I considered all that my hands had done, all the pleasure I sought, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So that seems to be the sad state of most pleasures, right? Once you've experienced them, they're, they're gone like the wind. They're, they're fleeting. Let's think about a fairly innocuous pleasure, coffee. Some of you are coffee lovers. You love your you love your coffee. Um, so let's say you and I were meeting, and I say to you, hey, let me buy your coffee. And you say to me, no thanks, I'm good. About a month ago, I had a cup of joe that has just really satisfied me, and I've had no need for coffee ever since. Right? No, no one has ever said that to me when I offered to buy their coffee, you know, in the history of me buying people coffee. It's, no one has ever said that. Because that's not how pleasure typically works, right? Pleasures are notoriously fleeting and unsatisfying beyond the moment of sensation. And it's important to know here we're not just talking about sinful pleasures here, right? As we'll see as Grandpa Q walks us through this, his list of explorations, many of his explorations are legit. So don't miss it. This is his assessment of all the pleasures he explored in his life. All was vanity, and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. He is saying they simply won't hold the weight of soul satisfaction. <clears throat> so let's go back, flip through his catalog of items on his pleasure quest. Back in verse three, I searched from my heart, or searched with my heart, how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom. And how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. So he starts with wine. And it doesn't sound to me like he was simply getting totally plastered, right? Because his wisdom is still guiding him through the process. So maybe he was more of a connoisseur of fine wine than just a notorious drunk, but either way, his findings, we just read them, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. Trying to drown your sorrows won't bring soul satisfaction. And surely we could apply his findings more broadly, right, to anything that we drink or smoke or eat or consume, or to anything we take to numb the pain and disappointment of living in this sorrowful, disappointing world. Living under the sun, he repeatedly refers to it. Now I added that broad label there of consuming. Anything we consume. And so I reckon that we could probably put in that category what we view or what we watch. Um, you know, at one point before before we had multiple streaming services, right? We used to have cable TV. It was kind of a one-stop shop, and there was a channel guide uh, that you could go to and just go through all the channels in a list, literally in a list on the screen, and see what was on. And I'm sitting there and I'm channel grazing, channel surfing, and I'm going through. We have like 500. I'm not exaggerating. We had like 500 channels, and I'm going through all these channels desperate, in a desperate search for something that will satisfy me or at least distract me happily. And I'm, I'm churning through these 500 channels and I get, I get to the end of 500 channels and I got nothing. I went through all 500 channels. Nothing would satisfy even the desire to be distracted. So you know what I do? I go back to the beginning and start to do it again in the vain hope that something has come on while I was surfing the first time, and now I can get satisfied. And it was like the poster boy for what Grandpa Q is saying. All was vanity and a striving after win. So, So Grandpa Q has a question for you guys. Is there anything that you're drinking or smoking or eating or consuming in some way that cannot bear the weight of the hope that you are placing on it. Are you hoping that it'll bring you peace? Are you hoping that it'll calm your fears? Are you hoping that it'll help you forget about disappointments or failures or even sins? Are you hoping it'll bring lasting satisfaction? Well, look at what's next on his pleasure quest. Down in verse four, he says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. He does great works, he says. Houses, houses that would make Biltmore blush, right? Vineyards that yielded the finest wine. Gardens and parks that far exceed Duke Gardens. Uh, Of special interest to me as a former civil engineer is he did these great water projects. And if this is connected to Solomon, then one of them still exists. They're called Solomon, the Pools of Solomon. And that's an actual photograph of, of those pools from his time. They're thousands of years old now. This is no mere backyard lily pond. This is something extraordinary. Some have suggested that it might have included the, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, which are, no longer exist, but they're part of the seven wonders of the world in ancient history. So clearly, you know, we're talking about world-class stuff here. This is the fruit of a lifetime's quest. You don't grow gardens and build buildings like that on summer break, right? This is the fruit of his life. He's reflecting, Grandpa Q is reflecting on his life's work and a truly great work at that. It's like a man-made garden of Eden is the way it reads. And you can notice all the plurals in this. He made great works. He had houses. He had vineyards. He had gardens. He had parks. He had all kinds of fruit trees. He had pools. He had more than one house. He had more than one garden. He had more than one vineyard, and on and on. Perhaps for us, as American Christians, we should take special note of the houses. Because if the American dream involves anything, it's probably a house, and it's probably a house that's just a little bit bigger and more better appointed than the house that you're living in, right? Um, I mean, think about our magazine covers and their titles. Southern Living, Country Living, House and Home, House Beautiful, Better Homes and Gardens. You know, I imagine that Grandpa Q's houses were cover-worthy on any of these magazines. But you remember what he said about it all. It won't bear the weight, won't satisfy. It's vanity and striving after wind. You know, the Atlantic ran an article recently that calls attention to the fact that American homes are a lot bigger than they used to be. Um, in 1973, when the Census Bureau started tracking home sizes, the median size of a newly built house was just over 1,500 square feet. That figure has reached nearly 2,500 square feet in the next four decades in 2015. We could add another decade onto it now, and I imagine it's considerably larger. But this rise, combined with the drop in the average number of people per household, the article says, has translated to a whole lot more room for homeowners and their families. By one estimate, each newly built house had an average of 500 square feet per resident in 1973, but four decades later in 2015, it was almost twice that, just shy of 1,000 square foot per person in the home. But the curious thing is Americans aren't getting any happier with their bigger built homes. Clement Bellet at a European business school wrote, Despite a major upscaling of single-family houses since 1980, house satisfaction has remained steady in American suburbs. A bigger house yields no more happiness. Greg Easterbrook wrote in a piece called The Progress Paradox, he says, If you sat down with a pencil and graph paper to chart the trends of American and European life since the end of World War II, you'd do a lot of drawing where the graph went up. Per capita income, real income, longevity, home size, cars per driver, phone calls made annually, trips taken annually, highest degree earned, IQ scores, just about every objective indicator of social welfare welfare has trended upward on a pretty much uninterrupted basis. But he says, but your graphs would lose their skyward direction when the topics turn to the inner self. The trend line, he says, would cascade downward like water over a falls on the topic of avoiding depression, for instance. He says, adjusting for population growth 10 times as many people in the Western nations today suffer from unipolar depression or unremitting bad feelings without a specific cause than did a half a century ago. 10 times as many. Tenfold. And he says, Americans and Europeans have... Ever more of everything except happiness. Pastor Matt Francisco helpfully comments the problem is not primarily that the American dream is dead, but that it has been achieved by so many and found wanting. It won't bear the weight, it can't satisfy, not deep down, not in here. And so, Grandpa Q has a question for you Are you looking for satisfaction? in Southern Living Magazine? Our houses, it's been said, are like sandcastles. They truly are a joy to build, but you can't build your life on it. The tide eventually always washes them away. Well, next, Grandpa Q reminisces about his wealth. In verse 7, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. Um, Author Philip Ryken summarizes, he says, given the vast scope of his building projects and the huge size of his property, the preacher king needed a massive workforce. To, To that end, he purchased many slaves, and to feed them all, many flocks and herds ranged across his royal ranch We see all of this in the life of King Solomon, who had countless servants waiting on him hand and foot. You can look in 1 Kings, places like 1 Kings 10 and 4 to see this. And so many animals, 1 Kings tells us, that every day the chef's in his royal kitchen, every day they prepared 10 fat oxen and 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep, besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. I ran across an article where they tried to assess who were the 10 richest, wealthiest people in all of history, in all of the world. And number one was no one other than King Solomon. His estimated net worth was equal to $2.1 trillion in modern-day parlance, nearly four times the runner-up. Grandpa Q knows wealth, right? Whether he's Solomon or one of his descendants. And he knows it won't bear the weight of soul satisfaction, of meaning in life, of bringing peace in here. So, back in 2014, Microsoft paid $2.5 billion to buy the Swedish company that created the game Minecraft. And this deal made Marcus Persson a billionaire almost overnight with a personal net worth of $1.3 billion. According to Forbes, a um, person promptly outbid Beyonce and Jay-Z for a Beverly Hills mega mansion, a $70 million home that had overwhelming sensory experience, it says. that had a movie theater, had 15 bathrooms, each bathroom equipped with toilets worth more than $5,000 each. But on August 29, 2015, barely a year after he became a billionaire, person posted a series of tweets in the middle of the night that captured his gnawing sense of unhappiness and dissatisfaction. At 4.48, he says, The problem with getting everything is you run out of reasons to keep trying, and human interaction becomes impossible due to imbalance. Two minutes later, hanging out in Ibiza with a bunch of friends and partying with famous people, able to do whatever I want, and I've never felt more isolated. Two minutes after that, when we sold the company, the biggest effort went into making sure the employees got taken care of and they all hate me now. A minute after that, found a great girl, but she's afraid of me and my lifestyle and went with a normal person instead. You know, it seems like beyond the meeting of basic needs, more wealth won't satisfy. In fact, great wealth and accomplishments seem to almost do the opposite their vanity, their smoke, they won't bear the weight. So, Grandpa Q has another question for you today. Are you laboring under the illusion that more will satisfy? More wine? More house? More money? So next on his list and last on his list, Grandpa Q talks about what he calls the delight of the sons of men. In verse 8, I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So he had his own choir, it sounds like. He maybe had a live band playing downstairs in the lounge whenever he went, went down there. Um, and then he had those concubines. Ran across a fascinating quote from a Christianity Today article by a celibate priest named Father Benedict Grushel, and he responds to this search of meaning and sexual activity really well. He says, I suppose that half the people you meet on a bus or in a shopping center or even at church on Sunday have had some sexual experience during the preceding few days. It is the observation of an old celibate from way back that they are not all so very happy. If sex brought happiness, the world would shine like the sun at least half the time. Celibates need not try to convince themselves that chaste celibacy is the road to earthly bliss. But on the other hand, They need to not feel deprived of the key to happiness. If there is a single key to contentment, it cannot be sexual experience. And I I think Grandpa Q would agree. And he should know. 1 Kings 11 says that Solomon had a harem that included 700 wives and 300 concubines. And Grandpa Q says that won't bear the weight. It's smoke. It's striving after the wind. And so Grandpa Q has one last question for you. Does sexual pleasure-seeking matter too much to you? Are you asking of it something that it simply cannot deliver? And so that's it. That's his list of pleasurable pursuits that he has explored for meaning in his search for meaning in life: wine, houses, vineyards, gardens, parks, trees, pools, male and female slaves, herds and flocks, silver and gold, music, and sex. And that's a pretty comprehensive list, right? But before we leave that pursuit of pleasure and look at what's next, I think it's important that we're reminded of his conclusion once again in verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done in that pursuit of pleasure and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Phil Rykin puts it this way He says, Wine, women, and song. The Solomon of Ecclesiastes had it all, and today his face would be on the cover of Fortune magazine, his home featured in a photo spread with Architectural Digest, pop stars would sing at his birthday party, and supermodels would flirt for his affections. But, Grandpa Q testifies, pleasure pursued for its own sake won't satisfy our souls. It just can't bear that weight. And so now he turns his quest Briefly back towards wisdom, which he briefly considered at the end of chapter 1. He's going to pick it up again here in chapter 2 and verse 12. So, I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there's more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness." don't miss the point that Grandpa Q starts with. And that's wisdom, he says, is better than folly, right? It's better to be wise than a fool. It's better to be learned than ignorant. Um, but it's a limited gain. It has an expiration date stamped on it. It's a fleeting one. That last verse, of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. And this counsel about wisdom, if if it's connected, has it roots in Solomon himself, it's coming from one, the Scriptures say, that God gave wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore. I don't know about you, but no one has ever said to me, Larry, you have a breadth of mind like sand on a seashore. You know, that, that's never <laughs> never happened to me. You know, I... Uh, I consider myself fortunate to have lots of smart friends. I mean, really smart friends, like Ph.D. smart friends. And I find the perspective of Professor Eric Ortland is commonplace amongst my Ph.D. smart friends. Listen to what he says. The amount of joy that Kohelet, Grandpa Q, received from his work was not enough in itself to redeem the years of toil it required. He says, by analogy, I found my doctorate a satisfying experience, but the quality of that satisfaction is in no way adequate to the years of toil and late nights that it cost to produce a manuscript now collecting dust in the basement of a university library. The disproportion between effort and satisfaction in result is vanity, according to Kohelet's use of the word. So Grandpa Q, he does have one more question. Are you counting on a learned title or a degree, that degree you're after? Or simply the, re- the reputation maybe of being smart to do what it cannot do? To bear weight it cannot bear? In summary, Pastor Matt Francisco says, The quest the preacher describes startles us with its familiarity. We, too, have staked our hopes on finding meaning, purpose, and joy under the sun. We, too, have been left disappointed. Sure, we may have had moments where we almost grasped what we were after. Maybe when we first landed that job or when we first got married or when our work was finally recognized, but as soon as we held it, it began slipping through our fingers. Naively, we assumed these moments pointed to a future moment just out of reach when everything would finally make sense, when we'd be able to rest, when we'd be unassailably happy. And as long as we're willing to follow the requisite steps, all we ever wanted would at last be ours. But he says the moment never comes. And so we remain hungry and restless. And in the end, death will make them vanish anyway, for the wise dies just like the fool, verse 16. And man dies just like the beast. And so castles made of sand slip into the sea eventually. He says, without the sobering perspective of Ecclesiastes, we could easily be deluded into thinking that we're restless and dissatisfied simply because we haven't arrived. Sociologists call that the arrival fallacy. See, that's not the case. It's not that we don't have enough or we simply haven't arrived yet. Pleasure and wisdom simply won't bear the weight of soul satisfaction of meaning and purpose in life. And so Grandpa Q ends today's conversation with this bleak assessment. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. And one writer put it well. They said in Kohelet's three searches, nature, pleasure, and wisdom, He seems to be putting infinite demands on finite things. Asking them to satisfy Him in ways they were never intended to. We're not much different. We expect some permanent gain under the sun for our work and then are bitterly disappointed when life fails our expectations. So if you put too much weight on the stuff of this life, life under the sun, he calls it repeatedly, its pleasures and its wisdom, then you're going to end up like me. Right? You're going to end up flat on your keister, um, because it wouldn't bear the weight. But you could suffer far more than just embarrassment in front of a neighbor. Grandpa Q warns us, you could end up hating life itself. If we hope too much in the thing made rather than the thing's maker, if we delight supremely in the gift itself above the giver, then we are setting ourselves up for terrible disappointment, we are setting ourselves up for a fall because it will not bear the weight. It will not. Only knowing the maker and the giver can bear that weight. So these pleasures in this life, they're at best a temporary pleasure, and that's okay. Next week, Carson is gonna show us from the back of chapter two how God intended life's little pleasures like this for us to enjoy, to eat. Grandpa Q is going to say next week, to eat and to drink and to have enjoyment is from the hand of God. But there's a fine line between enjoying something and hoping in it, between delighting in a pleasure and trying to find soul satisfaction in it. And I like the way Matt Francisco put it. Our inmost desires for joy, meaning, and purpose not only can be satisfied, but we're designed to be. Our disappointment in created things is not an act of cosmic cruelty. It's a merciful signpost. We eat and drink and find enjoyment in our toil because we know they're but signposts pointing to the deeper joy of life lived before God. Those signposts point to a life before God in Christ Professor Trimper Longman said, Jesus subjected himself to the fallen world in order to free us from the curse of the fall. He even suffered death, the thing that rendered Kohelet's life meaningless, in order to liberate us from the sting of death. Listen to the offer, the beautiful offer, and the, the kind, inviting words of Jesus himself. He says, Come to me, come to me, all who labor, And are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we would be, and we often are fools when we disregard this counsel, this voice of one so wise and so experienced. But Lord, every day we hear hundreds of voices that tell us the exact opposite, that really this is the pleasure that will satisfy, this is the thing that we need, this is the accomplishment that we must do, that education is our great hope. So Lord, help us. Have mercy on us. Let these deceptions fall on deaf ears here at Northwake. Let us treasure the wisdom that points us towards soul satisfaction in you, Jesus. Our Savior, our King, our only hope. This we pray in your name. Amen.